Hi, I'm Jahada Weaver and you're listening to Tech Mirror. My guest today is Sharad Sharma. Sharad is a passionate evangelist of the software product ecosystem in India. He's held senior leadership positions in a myriad of tech companies uh, in India, but also in the US. And back in 2013, he founded a, a nonprofit think tank called iSpirit. We're going to talk a lot about iSpirit in the course of the conversation today. I was lucky enough to meet with Sharad when I was in uh, Bangalore earlier this month, and I just had one of those absolutely fabulous conversations that I just had to invite you onto the pod. And I'm so delighted that we were able to make this happen. So, uh, Sharad, welcome to Tech Mirror. Happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you. Uh, now, we start by asking all of our guests the same question, which is, you know, what was the first interaction that you had with the internet or, or perhaps with computers? And one of the things that really stood out to me when I was uh, looking at your CV is that you have, in 1984, you started India's first student microcomputer club. I, I don't want to date myself, but that happens to be the year that I was born. Uh, so <laughs> I very much have dated myself, but can you, can you tell us maybe a little bit about that, but, but also, you know, what was your first interaction, uh, with maybe with the internet, uh, separate from, from computers? Yeah. So I was, I'm 1964 born. So I was 20 years old. You know, I was in, I was doing that engineering, a four year kind of an undergraduate program. And this was the time when all these computers were kind of becoming, they, they were beginning to capture the imagination of the young people at that time. And there was an operating system called CTM. Our engineering school had only one small machine. And then we said, hey, that's not sufficient. Let's get more. So we created a club. We, we found public money to get us more of those machines. And we started kind of coding on them, just playing with them. Uh, and uh, many of your listeners may not know uh, that CTM went on to become fairly popular. They had over 200,000 licenses at that time. It was from California, not what Silicon Valley is, but further south in Monterey area. Digital Digital Research was the company, you know, and a very charismatic guy used to run it. And believe it or not, when Bill Gates had conversations with IBM, when IBM was looking for an operating system, he pointed them to CPM. And the history is that IBM would have tied up with CPM, but digital research refused to sign a non-disclosure agreement. So the deal fell through and in its place came MS-DOS and MS-DOS was, you know, inspired, I won't say copied, but inspired by CPM. So all this, you know, was happening. I mean, of course, we didn't know all this, but uh, that was the history. And then I got involved in Unix, which had been given by AT&T Bell Labs to the universities. And as luck would have it, uh, you know, I ended up in AT&T Bell Labs as part of that whole gang. And uh, so it was absolutely a wonderful time for me. I was what you would call as a full Sheldon. And full Sheldon is those of people who watch a Big Bang Theory that would be 
you know, a good day would be if I didn't have to meet a human being or talk to another human being. And I was so immersed in that world. And uh, it was uh, absolutely fascinating. Mm. And of course, um, AT&T Bell Labs that you're referring to was was really where a lot of um, the fundamental research that built so much of the technologies that we now use came out of. You're an absolute passionate advocate for something that we refer to as digital public goods. We're going to talk about the philosophy and some of the rights and privacy implications of digital public goods uh, in the second part of the podcast. But I wanted to to take some time uh, first for our listeners to actually explain and conceptualize what digital public goods are, and also to give some examples of how digital public goods are changing people's lives on a daily basis in India, because it really stood out to me. Me, um, when I was there, how incredible, the, how incredibly advanced some of this technology is, but also how cognizant um, many of the technologists are about the rights and privacy implications. And so let's start with the first bit and then we'll move on to the second. So one of the really great examples um, of a digital public good that has been uh, implemented in India is something called the Unified Payment Interface, the UPI. So could you tell us what the UPI is and and what an, what impact UPI has had on you know the life of an average Indian. Right. You know, UPI is a payment protocol, but let me explain what that means. So if I go back to my engineering days, early days, you know, at that time when I started working on Unix, you could send email, Unix mail to another Unix user. But if you were on an IBM machine, there was no way to send them email. So a group of you know, smart people uh, at that time, you know, in Silicon Valley, they say, hey, we need to solve this problem. We've got to turn this single party system, you know, with being able to send mail within the Unix system to anybody, anybody, any other computer user. So they wanted to create a multi-party system. And so they had a choice. They could have put a company in the middle, which will, you know, receive our mail and, you know, and send it to the other party. They could have put a exchange or a platform in the middle and they were the inspired choice that they made is they put only a protocol in the middle and protocol is therefore a way of communicating with many peers at the same time so there's no central entity in that and so and that protocol all i think many of your listeners may have encountered it because all our email flows uses that protocol it's called smtp simple message transfer protocol right so if you go to payments Payments are also till recently a single party system. So if you have a visa credit card, it would work with the visa POS machine. You know, if you were in China, Alipay would work with Alipay, WeChat Pay with WeChat Pay. You know, generally that has been the system. And in India, if you go back to 2015 or so, there was a payment system by a company called Paytm. And that was also a closed system. So Paytm wallet would work. I could pay a merchant provided both of us was on Paytm. And if you have US listeners, they'll relate to that. Venmo is a Venmo to Venmo, right? I mean, it's a single party system. So this used to be the norm there. And, uh, and we needed to kind of find, a, we were trying to crack payments and we said, hey, you know, why not? do what was done with email in mid 80s and and we decided to put a protocol in the middle and that protocol is called upi and and i think as you know success requires luck 
you know it's not <laughs> many th- fortuitous things that come along uh, for it to happen because you know any one thing can break the momentum that you have and one thing led to another and upi kind of went on uh, to become a very successful payment system in india because it's a multi party payment system so everybody got involved every bank is involved and uh, you know lots of fintechs are involved and so today in india uh, on this day we will do more digital payments using upi than what china south korea france and us will do together and why has that happened because that made payments accessible to people who had a simple phone so in india a lot of uh, you know business happens in the informal sector so it allowed a small merchant you know a street vendor be able to collect digital payments and uh, so that's what's driving the volume right now so this protocol is not owned by anybody and that is a public good right and because it's not owned by any one private party just like smtp is not owned by any private party it's actually owned by itf in this case it's owned uh, it's a public good in that sense it's a public item and that allows lots of private innovators to innovate on top of it and then create something of value for everyone and so how do you with using upi if you are now um you know a person uh, in india who maybe doesn't have a bank account my understanding is that upi um one of the big impacts on it has meant that a lot of the population who were previously unbanked are now banked so can you just talk us through yes. that process so upi is a very evocative example of a public good but it's not the first public good that came along course, in yeah. india right and so before that uh, there is something that happened uh, which was an identity system in india which is called aadhar and uh, and which allowed everybody to have a number a 12 digit number and that number you can verify you can say is sharad this number right and the system responds and says yes sharad is this number or it says is sharad associated with this number you know 58 years old <laughs> and it comes back and gives you a yes and no response is sharad associated with this number living in bangalore because it has only four pieces of information about you it knows your name it knows your address it knows your age and it knows your gender so that's the only thing that is so on that it can give you a yes no response so but that turned out to be important so there are about 60 million such authentications that happen every day and but that changed the system because when you needed to open a bank account you could now do a kyc know your customer very quickly right so what had happened is that because of the 911 thing <laughs> you know the kyc norms across the world had become very tight so if i needed to apply for a bank account i needed to prove who i was and in india many people couldn't prove who they were because they weren't in the formal system to start off with right and in india at that time if you go back to 2008 and 9 you know 58% of our births would happen in a formal setting so if you happen to be the remaining uh, you know part of the gang which is 42% you didn't even have a birth certificate to start with right so uh, so what aadhar did was to solve that problem at scale so then it became very inexpensive to do an electronic kyc and since you could if you did a paper kyc that would cost you at that time 50 rupees and if you did an electronic kyc that cost you 2 rupees so the banks were now willing to open accounts for what were very marginal 
customers, right? I mean, they would keep very low balances and perhaps even zero balances. But they said, if it's only two rupees, hey, you know, we can do that because one day, hopefully, they'll be keeping more money and it's good for us to acquire them. So in seven years, uh, India zoomed from a country which had very low bank penetration to a country where uh, now more people have bank accounts in India than they have electricity at home. And so and and so this seven-year journey, you know, Bank of International Settlements, which is central bank to central bank, did an analysis and they said typically it took countries 46 years to achieve, right? So that became possible because there was a simple public good that was created, which allowed KYC to happen very quickly. So that... If it had that not happened, then UPI would not have happened because UPI relies on moving your money from one bank account to another. And if many people didn't have a bank account, if that street vendor didn't have a bank account, you know, then he won't be able to collect money on UPI. So luckily, these things have happened in succession. And uh, and one thing has led to another and it's kind of added up uh, into a significant kind of a financial inclusion journey for India. And I think, you know, the a lot of people when they hear this story, one, there is the technical story that sits behind it, which is extraordinary. And then there'll also be a lot of people who immediately think about, well, what about the privacy implications? What about the rights implications of that? Adar, for example, with uh, had multiple Supreme Court challenges that went through at the time uh, that Adar was implemented. So can you just speak a little bit about how the these digital public goods are taking into account and actually protecting and and moving rights uh, right into the center of the conversation uh, rather than marginalizing them because i think this is actually a key part of the debate that yes. doesn't get focused on enough absolutely and this is a very important issue uh because as we'll talk later technology shapes the social kind of norms right and so therefore Thinking of technology broadly is very important. So in this case, uh, for example, let us say I use this EKYC system to open multiple bank accounts. Then should the government be able to key in my number, my 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 twelve digit number, and quickly see how many bank accounts do I have? Right? No. <laughs> exactly. The answer should be no. Right? And so, so therefore, the system has to make it impossible. Because if you leave it to the politicians, they may say no today, but they may say yes tomorrow, right? So if you must therefore have technology that is restrictive, that that doesn't give them the option to say yes tomorrow. So in India, you know, you cannot take your Aadhaar number and you, although you may have used it to open three bank accounts, there is no mapper in the system that gives the government the right or the ability to go and therefore see what three bank accounts that I have created, right? So this is one. Now, this is very easy because how emphatically you said no. But let me give you another example, which actually (laughs) went to the courts. So in India, one of our states, Rajasthan, which is a very popular tourist destination, they had a program for scholarship for girls, right? And there were allegations that many of the beneficiaries were phantom (laughs) people. They were not really there. And that was a traditional corruption that used to happen, right? So now imagine if I have 100 such scholarships that I'm giving out, and then can I go to this Aadhaar system and say, hey, do these 100 people, because I know their names, do they live on this list that of people that we have in India, the resident register? And you could find 95 of them there. And the five that you don't, then you go and knock at their doors and say, hey, are you real or are you phantom, right? But in India, the system is so designed that 
it does not allow even the government to go and look up the list to see those 100 beneficiaries exist on the list without you cannot do it without consent so the state government at that time went to court and said this is a bug this should be sorted out <laughs> and the argument was that this is a feature now the the feature of course makes life much more complicated because for the state government now they have to go to each of those 100 people and say hey can i authenticate you using aadhar because that is the way i know you are real right and so so they said hey if we had this alternate system which by the way is possible to do in a, almost any other part of the world i mean so if you were in the us you could go to this central register look them up and say oh only five don't exist and therefore i must talk to only five in india that's not possible so there's been a debate whether that's a feature or a bug and thankfully the indian supreme court which has opined on it multiple times three times you know and every time they understood it more deeply because new issues came up and all the three times they realized that it was actually the right thing that was being done so now that that conversation <clears throat> has got muted why has it muted because all these issues i think in a democracy they got aired they were discussed they went to the courts you know and the indian supreme court opined on it and in the process they actually ended up doing something very very useful one of the useful things that they did was that this privacy ability that is built into aadhar it should not be available only in this scenario and it should be a fundamental right so so they gave a 90 judgment in the in, in a, there was a supreme court bench and you know 90 things are Never almost happens. impossible yeah. to yeah. The, done around and and i think india became the first country where privacy was then established as a fundamental right now it has yet to be incorporated into law because the supreme court instructions were this has to be now formalized into a law that is in compliant with their judgment and then they formed a committee and there is a draft and that draft you know the legal process will resolve itself hopefully you know in the next few months but even if it doesn't you know you can't have a law that is going to violate the fundamental right as expounded by the supreme court so i think that has put india on a good wicket uh, as we go forward <clears throat> yeah and i think it's it's so when you explain that it's actually kind of the opposite of what people initially think when they hear about digital identity or online payments what has actually happened through the indian system is that you know if i was to articulate it very simply the difference of the indian approach to the approach uh, in the us or other places in india you're building the technology to protect the privacy whereas in a lot of other places we're relying on regulation and policy to bring the privacy but what the side effect which is extraordinary through this uh through the um supreme court cases in in india the supreme court is the highest court in australia it's the high court is that you've actually uh, taken a technical solution that delivered privacy uh from a online perspective and then had that right be extended offline and and you know there are two side effects of this johanna i i think which i i think which which are good learnings one is it puts the public technologists squarely in the position of saying hey you are not a law into yourself you know your if you build public technology you have an obligation you know to the civil society right to prove it to them you know there's no reason for them to 
believe it. Yes. <laughs> Just because Trust you're saying it. Trust me, doesn't cut it. Right? Yeah. yeah. Right? And, you know, and I would admit all of us were in the in this camp and saying, hey, don't you know how good we are at this? <laughs> yes. Yeah. You know, and then we went through this exercise and then we realized that now anything that we build, we have an obligation to educate, explain, put it out into the open. And, and the earlier you engage, the more trust will be built, right? So that's number one. Number two, it allowed India to do de novo digital policies which very few countries are able to do. I'll give you an example. So in the case of COVID, for example, right, India managed to provide 2 billion vaccination doses in essentially one year, right? And they were all free because they offered by the government to everybody for free. But you had to obviously sign up for it, take an appointment and then go and then obtain a digital certificate, which is authenticable. So in my certificate, there's a barcode that anybody can read and it will go to the back end to tell you whether my certificate is authentic or not authentic, right? So for this whole process to work out, the only way to get this scale of 2 billion vaccination doses, which is two kind of doses for almost every Indian, was to do it as a purely digital process. Now, had you gone back in time, if, if you went back five, six years, even I would have argued that taking a purely de novo digital process would exclude lots of people. But the journey of India is such now that that conversation is not a material conversation because now people have a lived example of everybody getting a, a vaccination, but only by engaging with the system in a digital way, right? And sometimes they don't do it themselves. They have a younger person in the family to do it. They'll have a para nurse. They call ASHA workers. So there's an assisted model. But nevertheless, it's a purely digital model. And that, I think, is uh, very important. Because now if you think of it, then if you can apply that to many other areas, for example, education or you know other parts of health, then it opens up the doors to scaling good things out quickly, which would have been impossible in the old model. And especially when, I want to be clear here, we're not we're not having a conversation that is unbridled techno-optimism. This is actually really a conversation that is grounded on these technologies have rights and obligations built into the way that the technologies work so that you can't actually violate privacy when you're using these technologies. And that is a real game changer. Absolutely. And and so therefore, the obligation for public technologists is not just to build permissive technology, is to build restrictive technology in some areas. Because if you don't, if you don't build privacy by design, it's not going to happen, right? In a place like India, where the legal system operates, but operates very slowly, we have the same Anglo-Saxon <laughs> law, you know, that you have in Australia, but our court systems are choked. And so they move very slowly. And so if you have to rely on the legal process, you know, people don't get justice in time. And so the way to make that happen is to take a technological approach. And therefore, there's an obligation on public technologists to think of their obligations to society in a new way that was not happening before. Mm, yeah, and uh, Jamie Susskind, uh, who we interviewed on a previous episode of the pod, describes this as as software engineers are becoming social engineers and so taking on that that obligation. Look, we're going to delve into that the philosophy uh, conversations and we'll come back to the idea of the next generation of, of engineers. Before we do that, I just want to talk briefly the last sort of technical part of the conversation around the data 
of empowerment and protection art architecture um, that is sort of we had ADAR as step one, then we had UPI as step two. Really what I understand, and please correct me, the data empowerment and protection architecture is saying, okay, we've actually got quite a lot of data out there now. How do we make sure that the user owns and has consent over the way that data is used? So could you, you know, it it, it is something that sounds like it's such a simple thing, but in my view, giving individuals back agency over their own data is the point at which we we would we will look back in history and say our relationship with digital technologies fundamentally changed when we solved this problem yes so a good way to think of this is again since we talked about upi let's talk about money see back in time we would keep the money under under the mattress right we would keep the money on our own then we found custodians called banks which would you know, be the custodians of our money. But it's only the last 100, 150 years that the rules on what the custodians can do with my money have been actually formalized, right? So if I owed you some money and you were friends with my banker 200 years ago, you could take the money from my bank account. And yes, the banker may have violated their terms of service to me, but would not have violated any law. Right. And, you know, the terms of service in those days, 200 years ago, were like our terms of service today, that the banker could any time change the terms of service <laughs> you had to comply with it. Right. So, so, so it's only in the last 100, 150 years, the golden rule of banking came that if you are a custodian, right, and uh, of my money, thou shall not debit my account without my permission. Right. Now, this is such a simple concept. I know, take it's it so moment, foundational. Right? Yeah. It's so foundational. Right. So, when we got this UPI done, we said, look, you know, the simplest insight that we had was today all our personal data is with a custodian. Right. My photos are with a custodian. Right. I mean, maybe Google Photos, Apple Photos, Facebook, somewhere. They're custodians. They're my photos, but they are the custodians. And so, at some point in time, we will have a law which says that thou shall not send my personal data to somebody else without my permission, right? Now, we must appreciate what GDPR did because this was a concept which was formalized into law, right, in, in GDPR, that unconsented flows of personal data are essentially illegal. But, you know, what we were doing in India was to make it accessible to people, Right. And so to give it, make it very simple for an ordinary Indian, you know, you know, even a street vendor being able to give permission to move their money from place A to place B, right, in a way that is safe and secure and, you know, not open to fraud. So we said, hey, why can't we apply the same process? to my personal data. After all, my personal data sits with many custodians. Some of it is with my telecom operator because they know what cell towers I visited. Some of it is with my bank because they know what is the transactions that I've had. Some of it is with my health providers and so on and so forth. So if that is all my information, can I not put a protocol in the middle that would allow for this to go to whoever I want to send to, right? And anything other than and it can only be done without consent so the innovation that happened before i go to the technical innovation which is depa the data empowerment and protection architecture that's the protocol but the innovation that we had was that we said that this person who collects the consent should be a fiduciary of the data subject the data subject is the individual right in other words cannot work for the custodian 
of where my data was sitting because then may be bribed to ask for a very broad consent or can be cannot be a, a business partner of where it is going right and so so if you can now make sure that this consent collector is by law my my fiduciary right representing is not allowed to have a business model that they can make money from either of those two parties then we have a better chance of having informed consent because i have an agent who has been created to work for me so that i can give informed consent versus uninformed consent right so this is number one number two is i will in this early learning process give uninformed consent because i'll make mistakes right so i should be able to revoke my consent without any problem right i mean i should be able to go back and say sorry i gave you consent that for the rest of my life you can look at my bank account information but i've changed my mind i don't want to do it anymore and it should be as easy to revoke your consent as possible and then we must not go for broad consents because broad consents you know you know are meaningless as you know and then they should be granular in nature and then built into what we earlier talked about there should be logs which are auditable right and furthermore because i may not have fully understood consent when my data moved tell me that my data has moved because then that will prompt me again to say hey i made a mistake i didn't realize this is what i was signing up for i can go back and revoke it now and it must be fully secure so that it should not be hacked so that we call that organs so open revocable granular uh, uh, auditable you know uh, uh notified notifiable and secure organs and that became the design principles for the depa system and the depa system then became a public protocol people can go and look at it at depa.world and uh, and the idea is that anybody can use it and then we had to now go back and convince some sector of the economy to bring this to life and thankfully because of our work in financial inclusion the regulators were very willing to do that and and the financial regulators came together and they said look you know this makes complete sense let's try it out and that has been tried out and that system that implementation of depa protocol in the financial world is called the account aggregator and uh, we don't move very quickly we want to do it right because the consequences these are fragile systems right i mean if you make one mistake the trust will go away right and so we want to do slowly and do it right but now thankfully you know it was formally launched to the indian public on 2nd september last year and uh, it's just about 13 months old 1.1 billion bank accounts are connected million transactions have happened it's growing at 60% month on month you know and there is no it's not perfect yet there are still bugs to solve but it's not imperfect enough for anybody to complain loudly enough for it to come in the press and say the damn thing is not working <laughs> so <laughs> uh, and uh, if it's not and if it's not working people it won't grow organically you know so quickly which is 60% uh, you know month on month so so this is uh, this is the area now one part of this which we'll come to later is that it's not just building tech it's also building the right institutions for it so one institution that you need is a regulatory capacity you have to create but you also have to create market capacity so in the markets where all the players who are part of this we insist that they also follow the norms that are there and so we say you must regulate yourself and therefore you must be a self regulatory organization and that is a requirement and that i spirit incubated 
and we let it go free because it had matured it's called sahamati it's i think the most least recent blog post on the ice spirit site so uh so that's it's a as you can see it's not just tech thinking it's tech regulation market all the three coming together mm, that will mm, be interesting. Mm. yeah and and so i mean there's a few things there for us one for anyone in australia listening to this um it's not dissimilar a concept to the consumer data right which we are looking to uh, expand in australia we have a consumer data right over energy uh, and it's looking to expand into other sectors but it's actually far more mature in its progression uh, in india and i you know i think the best way to explain this is at the moment when you are operating online you click the terms of service and say yes i i allow you whoever it is whether it's google or facebook or the others out there you you i consent to you uh, having and using my data as basically as you see fit that's what you're doing when you click i accept what this principle is saying is um actually when they are using your data they need to come back to you and you you say yes or no as that data uh, is uh, is used, and that uh, then gives a lot more agency and control back to the individual, and also will probably quite significantly reduce the flow of data as well, because um, a lot of us, uh, if given that option, will probably consent um, to the data flowing in in far less. Um, it, it flowing far less than it currently does, for example. Um, so it's a it's a pretty dramatic change that you're proposing. Yeah, and so it's now uh, the norm in the financial data sector and the health sector, and we're hoping that the law that comes will apply it or extend it to all sectors. And the law then needs to create the regulatory architecture to enforce it, because in many sectors there isn't a regulator to enforce it. Now, financial sector, we had regulators, so they were willing to step in and say, we will enforce it, right? In health, they're regulators, so they say, hey, we will enforce this. But what about, let's say, advertising? You know, we don't have a regulator there. So who enforces it in that area, right? And so so they, the law has to hopefully provision for creation of a data regulator, in at least in those sectors where we don't have regulators uh, or you know, well-functioning regulators at all. All right. So I would love to uh, speak a little bit about iSpirit. You mentioned there that iSpirit incubated one of these regulatory frameworks. Can you tell us what iSpirit is um, and also how the work that you do actually happens? Because it's it's quite extraordinary. It's volunteers doing all of this. Yes. So iSpirit is a volunteer network. And, you know, the best way to think of iSpirit is that it's a movement, right? It's a movement. And strictly speaking, if no money was involved, you didn't even need a legal entity to do this, right? Mm. But although we have volunteers, we pay for travel of those volunteers when they're doing high spirit stuff. And some of our younger volunteers get a living, living wage. So we have a little bit of donor money flowing through the system. So whenever you have money flowing through the system, you need a legal entity. And, and so therefore, high <laughs> spirit is a non-profit kind of a legal entity, right? But it's set up in its uh, it, it essentially as a as a mission, right? As a movement, and the movement is to frankly change the you know I'm having coffee in a mug which says re- rewriting the script of the nation, and our 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 Twitter handle is product nation. So it's to change the structure of Indian economy 
right now when we started we knew it's not going to happen in a hurry so we've been calling it as a 30 year journey and uh, and we realized that we can't get there right away so we have to go there in phases so before you change the structure of the economy can you go back and change the structure of how government delivers services to its own citizens right and that is where you know uh, benefits transfer became important because the benefits would get eaten up along the way and and dbt direct benefits transfer became one big area and that's you can say phase one of this journey right which is government services uh, have become more efficient the second phase is can you bring the market into this in some sector so the first sector that we picked was the financial sector because in the financial sector the problem is that most of financial services don't reach the indians that they should so it used to cover what we call as only india india one so india is a big country as you know 300 million families so if you take just the 100 million families we call it india one the second 100 million families is india two third 100 million families is india three so india three is very poor because they are the poorest of the lot economically so government services are very important so the first phase was to reimagine the delivery of government services to india 3 using public technology so that that can improve and then once that came under control then the focus was what can we do india 2 is a market and there is a michigan professor who had a lot of influence on us his name is ck pralhad he wrote a book which was a very big bestseller fortune at the bottom of the pyramid and uh, so you know so we said yes the india 2 has the potential to be market players but they're going to buy things in small sashes they have to be inexpensive small sashes should not mean high margins so how can providers service them you know in a way that is profitable because that's the way it will all happen and that required the same thing to do which is to build public tech to enable them to make it come to life right so we picked a street vendor you've seen the slide called rajini slide that is there so we said okay let's work for her for the next 10 15 20 years because you know we want her to become a market participant in a way that she is not in a seller's market so if she wants a loan today she has to go and beg for a loan what can we do so that now all these lenders are making a beeline so she can actually pick out the best possible loans but they would do that only when many other things came together including public tech and policy and so that became phase two right and that's been what's going on you know as we speak in not just financial inclusion but health and logistics and areas like yeah, and I, I, that's that slide really stood out to me. So, uh, for listeners, it's a slide which has all of the different types of um, digital public goods um, that iSpirit is championing that are that are being rolled out in India. But in the centre of all of this is a picture of Rajini, a street vendor, um, and you know, with the message that everything we do, we do for Rajini, and it it really, I think, is a very powerful visual representation of what iSpirit stands for. And in the presentation uh, you uh, gave to me. Um, you, there's this great quote from Brad Smith, uh, the president of Microsoft here, where he's talking about if you are going to be serving the world from a technological perspective, you do need to sustain the world's trust. Uh, but it, we're currently in a world where Americans don't really trust technology from China. The Chinese don't trust technology from the US, but most of the world trusts what comes from India. And 
So I think that this is something that really uh, also resonated to me when you were speaking about that. And I just wonder if you can uh, touch a little bit on the geopolitical drivers of tech development uh, in India. So so he was visiting India and this was, I think he made this quote on the last day. And and I think it was influenced by uh, something called MOSIP, M-O-S-I-P dot I-O, right? So what had happened is, see, it had become clear to us that although the Aadhaar system works well, ultimately it's owned by the government. There isn't much trust in government to government. (laughs) For example, you know, many countries want their own GPS-like system because they're worried that, you know, if things, they're not in the good books of the US, US may weaponize that system and may switch it off in their area, right? Uh, so, 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 so what has happened in the last 10 years or, or so, particularly, uh, you know, the governments have weaponized lots of systems that were government systems, so-called public goods. So, so people don't want to take on this stuff. So in India, we have electronic voting machines, they work very well. But if you give it to another country, they have this, you know, they have this sense that maybe the Indian government may influence our elections, right? Now, of course, you can tell them it's all open, you can go and inspect it, right? But very few countries actually have the capability to inspect it. I'll I'll give a small story and maybe some of your listeners may appreciate it. There is an open source, uh, you know, object-oriented database called MongoDB, right? Now, it's a very good database, but CIA invested in the company that created it. So in India, there was a big uproar when, you know, one of these public systems was going to use it. They said, how can you use something that has CIA money in it, (laughs) right? Now in India, people technically respected people and one of them is project, uh, a a professor in one of the IITs, his name is Rajat, Professor Rajat Mona. So they formed a committee, he looked at it, he assembled a team and said, no, it doesn't matter you know, maybe they have invested, but we can understand the open source code and we can be fully satisfied that there's no risk in using it. So we were able to use it. But many other countries won't have Professor Rajat Monas and that kind of capability to analyze it. So for them, it is better to not go with something that has lineage that is suspicious, right? So what has happened here is that lineage has become very important because open source a lot of open source is corporate open source a lot of open source is billionaire open source so for example bill and melinda gates foundation has an open source payment solution called moja loop can, can you just explain uh, for for listeners who maybe don't have the technical background what open source actually is so open source means that if you have a piece of software that you're going to use you know it's not a black box it is available to you and you can inspect the source code and in fact modify it right without uh, without problems and in fact you mentioned uh, you know one of your earlier guests and he he in the podcast mentioned code 2.0 and that comes from Larry Lessig and Larry Lessig create the legal framework for all this to happen in a sensible way and that's called GPL and there are many other license mechanisms to do that. So if I'm a user of that software, I can not only inspect it, I can also modify it, you know, to suit my needs. So I am not at the mercy of somebody else. There's no trust me element to it. If you want to, if you've got the skills, you can. Now, in the hands of a very informed user, this is good enough, right? But most countries don't have the technical capabilities to do that. So then for them, the proxy is that are the custodians of this trustworthy, right? 
So in India, what we realized was that if you wanted our identity system, which was working very well for India, if you wanted other countries to use it, it needed to be parked in an educational institution that was itself trustworthy, right? So we parked it here in Bangalore in a place called Triple IT Bangalore in whatever it's called, you know, Indian Institute of IT at Bangalore, and uh, and very well regarded. And on top of it, right from the beginning, we created an international advisory council, which would oversee and examine everything that was happening right from day one, right? And what they were producing is furthermore open source, right? So when many things come together, then this becomes trustworthy. Simply making it open source is not enough, right? So lineage becomes very important. And and ironically, you know, the most trustworthy public goods in the world come from IETF. And I know you are a fan of IETF as well, Internet Engineering Task Force. <laughs> what is it? It's just a collection of volunteers, right? So some we've come to a point where a collection of volunteers, if they are do-gooders and they have won the trust of society, they can be trusted as good custodians, Educational institutions can be trusted as good custodians. For example, I'll give you another example. There's a digital, there's a district health information system, which is also open source. And but many, and it's very widely used across the world. In India alone, 16 states use it. And but that comes from University of Bergen in Norway. Right. And so that gives people the confidence that these academics are not mercenaries. Right. They're not doing it, uh, you know, for making money and, and they would be good custodians. So so lineage is very important. And and I what Brad Smith is saying is mostly in the context of where we have started to get the lineage. Right. So so our thing is that it's not only important to build public digital public goods, but it's also to build them in a way that their governance, their their custodianship, their lineage, it creates long-term trust in them. And uh, and that often means not having it with the government and not having it with billionaires and not having it with market entities, right? And, and having it either with a volunteer group or having it with an educational institution. Long answer to a short question. No, no, it's it's brilliant. It's fascinating. And so, you know, the two last substantial questions that I'd love to to delve into is this concept of how do we create a new generation of engineers who understand their responsibility in building digital public goods that the, or public tech, as you've been referring to it, because it is a shift in thinking. Uh, and I think the, the phraseology that you used for in the conversation we had earlier was that we need to move away from technology being values-free to being values-based. I, re- I, I fundamentally agree with that. How do we actually get the technologists to understand that? And what's been the response from the tech? You are a technologist, but what, what has been the response uh, from, the, from the technologists that you work to, to that concept? So there, there are uh, three things that we have to take into account. One is that this is a new way of thinking about technology. And I think the person who kind of popularized this is E.O. Wilson, you know, an evolutionary biologist who got scared with what was happening with CRISPR and to his credit then, you know, thought more deeply about it and felt that this is not just a CRISPR issue, this is not just an AI issue, this is broadly applicable to godlike technologies that we are creating. So the term that he used is the technology is becoming godlike and wherever it's becoming godlike, we got to approach it in a new way. And, and so this is number one. Number two, we have to overcome some myths that have bedeviled 
all of us, actually, not just the technologists. And one myth is that somehow if we create open protocols, that will lead to decentralization. And that's not true at all. Our lived experience is not like that, right? And, uh, and you know, and why that happened? Because of a famous book called The Long Tail by Chris Sanderson. And he said, less is more. You know, the long tail will thrive and the fat tail will shrink. No, the reality is that actually with when these things happen, you know, the long tail, Tails don't thrive that well. They do okay, but actually it's a hit market that happens. And that's what we are seeing. You know, com- the few companies become dominant, few movie titles become dominant, music becomes more concentrated around a few uh, areas, you know. And so so this is a myth that we have to overcome that somehow, you know, just doing open protocols is an answer to a long tail economy coming up. And that doesn't happen. The, the third, the other myth that is very important for us to overcome is that that small suppliers like open networks. Now, this is very counterintuitive, right? So, in India, there's an airline that has come up recently. It's called Akasa Airline, right? So, so if they go to an online travel agent, the online travel agent will show that option if you want to travel. But, you know, the consumers will not pick it up because they don't know that airline well. So they have to advertise. And for them, easier thing to do is to convince the online travel agent to do the advertising for them, right? To promote them. You know, when they show three options, show this as a sponsored option, right? And so the small suppliers actually don't want open networks, right? And the myth has been that small suppliers are the agents of having open networks, right? And that has never been true. And I learned this partially because of working in Yahoo R&D at one time and also because of what free basics a program that facebook had you know came to india and we learned a lot from that so the second part is that godlike technology first needs eo wilson thinking second is that we have to overcome some myths that are still prevalent the myth is that open networks or distributed decentralized networks you know are a byproduct are an emergent phenomena of open protocols actually the reverse is true you know open protocols lead to concentration lead to monopolies lead to you know uh, you know long tails being sacrificed for fat heads and so this myths have to be overcome right and then comes this idea in its place saying that then you have responsibility. Then your responsibility becomes that if you want that outcome, which is, I think we all agree is inclusive, decentralized, you know, you know, and therefore barriers to entry for new players remains low over time. Right. And, and those kind of outcomes is what you want. Then Technology cannot be a bystander. Public technology has to be an enabler in the hands of the regulator to make it happen. So public technology has then two masters. One are the innovators who want to innovate and make this happen through the market route. And the second master is a regulator who has a responsibility for making sure that monopolization doesn't happen. So how do you build this public technology that will, you know, kind of satisfy these two almost contradictory uh, approaches, innovation, Better innovation and better regulation, right? So there is an obligation on uh, public technology. So our experience is that if you really take very good technologists, right? And if you take, let's say, 100 of them, only 20, 30 of them are interested in public technology. And out of those 20, 30, only a handful, I would say five, are interested in the kind of public technology which is values-based that we are talking about. 
because the ideology of technology being fully permissive in nature right so nuclear technology my job is to build the best nuclear technology it's society's responsibility to worry about amplifying good and bad use cases that ideology is still very powerful in tech and i would venture to say has become more powerful because the silicon valley companies have, as they have become more powerful they have abrogated to themselves the right to do whatever they like <laughs> right so they say we should not be interfered with right and so the technology is working in there also feel hey we have no responsibility then you know we should keep doing what we were doing earlier so it's a hard thing and i think only a fraction of the technologists have embraced this idea and and so in a way you can say i spirit is a volunteer network of those people but hopefully this idea maybe 5 10 years later will become more mainstream mm. and and many more people will think mm. of doing it this mm. yeah and i i think you know there are certainly uh companies in silicon valley that that um very clearly ascribe to that view of uh, where the technologists were going to build it i think increasingly there are uh companies and people who work within those companies that are starting to question that mentality and that's very heartening as you start to see that coming up whereas where you have these people who do work for big tech for example but who are driven by purpose and the question is how do we harness that how do we grab those people amplify them and use um the sort of collective network uh, which you're building with iSpirit um to actually change the technology we're building so that we're building the technology that shapes the world that we all want to be be living in now you have one solution actually that you're putting on the table with this and this is around normative principles of of tech design um and and i should say also i, I will put a link up uh, in the pod to a great article that you wrote uh, with a former colleague of mine a dear friend Henri Verdier who is the uh, the french uh, cyber ambassador that touches on this uh, the point about the the new generation of technologists so we'll put a link to that in in the pod notes on normative principles your looking at um building uh, basically increasing health access for um for people in India who don't currently have access to uh, health systems and you're saying we can do that by using technology but as we build that technology we must guide the as we're we're building it there must be it must be built in accordance with particular principles there's a whole set of principles i'm not going to read them all but just to give the listeners a sense the the principles which i guess are kind of like the roadmap that is being given to technologists are things like that the technology must be accessible even by the most economically disadvantaged individuals in the population or that if we are um if you are sharing health data it must be always be under the control of the citizens whose data it is so this approach to um essentially giving the guidance to the technologists before they're building the technology um again is something that seems so simple and so first principles but the previous mentality and this is what the the article with uh that you wrote with Henri talks about is we we just assumed that if we built the technology on open platforms that these principles would flow but it hasn't and now you're saying we need to actively build these principles into the design so can you talk a little bit about that but also so again the reception you know are the technologists receptive to this idea yeah so so uh, see i think there were both places i would just expand this to say that our belief is that look the fact that the regulators believed in these principles has generally been true right so they may not have made those principles explicit but 
generally the regulators want to do the right thing, right? And at least uh, that's been the norm. The question is, what about the public technologists and what about the market players, right? And so what we are asking for here in India is demanding from both adherence to these principles not just the regulators right so so the so our way of thinking is that's it's we are building a playground in the playground there are market players there's public technology there is you know regulators who set the rules of the game and and all the three should be able to look at the same set of principles and modify you know and they have an obligation because they are contributors to this playground and they have an obligation to contribute in a way that advances these principles right so no, technologists of course have to do that which you talked about but we are demanding the same from the market players as well and therefore saying you know how do we do this how do you make sure this happens be self regulating so because you will have bad apples it's inevitable that you will when you have an obligation to take those bad apples out right and that is a very different approach to the traditional way the market collectives are formed the traditional market collectives are lobby groups right to influence the regulator in this case we are saying this market collective also has a responsibility and therefore should be a self regulating organization so i think this is a experiment we have to see how it goes right and uh, but the experiment here in india is that can we use this to build better playgrounds in which private innovation will happen on public public infrastructure public technology so that they can solve the hard problems in india 2 and india 3 but in a way you know that would be in alignment with the norms that we have stated so this paper that you're talking about is our first kind of salvo at sharing the norms publicly and inviting discussion and you know and that will hopefully let lead to a better set of norms. Mm-hmm. And this is why having um, multiple conversations is so valuable because I I had thought you were shaping those principles for the technologists but what you're saying of of having the same set of principles for the technologists for the market and for the regulators makes eminent sense uh in terms of you know yes you can have self regulation within the market but when then when the regulators need to step in because it hasn't worked uh, they're operating by the same set of principles ditto for the technologists that are building the technology so thank you so much sharad i'm conscious we we are at time the the last question that we have uh, is one we also ask all of our guests and it's really you know what resources or books or recommendations do you have for people who want to learn more about this obviously we'll put links up to iSpirit's website to the articles we've we've spoken about but what are your go-to recommendations you know we've been working quietly because our history is that don't talk create facts on the ground right and uh, so we we've, we've not put many of these ideas out and in fact uh, johanna i appreciate the fact that you are bringing these out in some form or fashion you know remember in the beginning i described myself as a fool sheldon we are not very good at communicating right so so we need uh, you know we need to partner and i i think there is a uh, an out of this this is very early and things will come out uh, as we go forward clearly there are things happening in antitrust uh, you know timbu and and others are you know there's a whole revolution taking place in that area you know and there's lots of stuff that has happening in economics you know which will underpin this because i think the economic theory also needs to be uh, updated right to provision for public goods in the way that it has not been provisioned for in the past right and so so we had elenor ostrom 
the 2009 winner of the Nobel Prize in Economics and the first woman to win that prize. She's she put this in place, but this is the start of that journey. A lot more has to happen. And Paul Romer has talked about a little bit between the role of innovation and public goods, uh, you know, as Eleanor Ostrom talked about, but more needs to be done. So economics has to embrace this in a very big way. And then this idea that, you know, people who are neither making money nor having any glory, right, can create significant assets is not understood by our MBA schools, right? Because their definition is that everybody does it because money is the motivator. And you know, you know, Wikipedia is a living example of that not being the case, right? And so you don't have to go far. Linux and even Unix and many other things that India has done are a product of, you know, management theory having to be advanced. So I think I think, you know, these are the areas where we must engage because these are the places where we have to go and talk about our story. And I think all this can only happen if technologies and policymakers come together to do it. Because if only the public technologies are doing it, it will not happen. And if only the public policymakers are doing it, it won't happen. So my thing is that the first place where we have to build a bridge is between public technologists and public policy, right? And if you do that, then these are the other areas that we can take this thinking to as we go forward, right? And uh, so uh, so that's one way to think about that. And I, I think this is where we have an absolute mind meld because you're the technologist, I'm the public policy, and, and we both very much believe that we need to be building the bridges between our two communities. Um, thank you so much. It's an absolute honour to uh, to have met you when I, when I was in uh, uh, Bangalore, but also thank you so much for being so generous with your time this afternoon and for all of the work uh, that you and time that you give and the volunteers at iSpirit um, in the work that you do. So um, looking forward to working with you, uh, going forward in the future and uh, thank you so much for your time today thank you so much Take care. tech mirror is a podcast of the tech policy design center at the australian national university this episode was produced on Ngunnawal lands by jack fox ben gowdy provided invaluable research and post-production support if you would like to support the pod please give us a five-star rating or even better leave us a short review this really helps us to get the word out we also love it when you send us questions or comments. We read them all. You can find out more by following us on Tech Policy Design on Twitter or LinkedIn or Google Tech Policy Design Centre and follow the links. Thanks for listening. Get in touch and get involved.